Connect, influence, optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association. Working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to The Channel Channel. This is David Loftus, CEO of ECIA and host of this session of The Channel Channel, a podcast sponsored by the Electronic Components Industry Association, covering topics that are important for participants of the electronic supply chain. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Scott Shute, a longtime successful high technology executive, now a noted author, speaker, leadership coach, and self-help expert. Welcome, Scott. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Scott and I actually go back around 25 years, back to really our first management roles at Xilinx. Uh, we've been family friends. Uh, Scott actually coached both our sons in baseball a number of years ago. And I thought it was really interesting. You've had an intriguing journey from a junior salesperson at TI. You, know, you are a person from our business to uh, VP global customer operations at LinkedIn, managing about a thousand people uh, worldwide to the head of mindfulness and compassion. And now to your newest role that we'll discuss more as we uh, go through the chat. Can you share maybe a bit about your personal journey? Sure. Well, I, I guess there's kind of two parts. One is the career track, which you outlined, you know, perfectly. Uh, and you know, like a lot of people, I don't know that I had a big plan. You know, I got an engineering degree and went into sales and that that evolved into eventually being an executive at LinkedIn. But I think of myself as a bit of a dual agent in that there's this other part of me, which was just as important, but was not expressed at work. You know, I started a meditation or contemplation practice when I was 13. I've been teaching the, those types of things since I was in college. I'm even a member of the clergy outside of work, something I never talked about at work. But I got to LinkedIn in such an open environment that, you know, I started volunteering by leading a meditation class. And that snowballed into me being the executive sponsor of our mindfulness program, which we didn't really have one. And so then, long story short, I ended up creating a full-time job out of it. Uh, our CEO, Jeff Wiener, CEO at the time at LinkedIn, was out in the world talking about compassion. And just over time, it just became apparent that this is something that not only I could focus on individually as a full-time thing, but we as LinkedIn, it fit the culture we were doing. So with his help and the head of HR's help, we created this role, head of mindfulness and compassion programs, where my job still, my mission is to change work from the inside out in two ways, by mainstreaming mindfulness and by operationalizing compassion. So that's the cliff notes on how we got here. Very good. So that position at LinkedIn is highly unique in the industry. Not many companies have ahead of for sure. Less than compassion. Should for they? Sure. Should they? I think so in some form. Depends on the size of the company, right? So as an example, companies that reach a certain size often will have a head of wellness, which is usually focused on you know, our overall wellness and especially our physical wellness, you know, companies will have gyms and they don't bat an eye usually about having a gym or at least providing discounts to go get a gym. But what I always say is 
you know, how many of our employees do we need to run a six minute mile for their job? Or how many employees do we need to bench press twice their weight for their job? But how many of our employees do we need to be mentally focused or emotionally stable for their job? <laughs> and when you, when, when you think about it like that, man, we should be spending 50 or 100 times on things like mental wellness as we are on physical wellness. And physical wellness, I'm a proponent of as well. So that's on the, the wellness piece. And then the compassion piece, the operationalizing compassion, this is a different deal, right? mindfulness is an individual sport. It's what happens between our ears. It's, it's very private. Each person has a different flavor, what that looks like for them. But compassion is essentially how we interact with each other, not only each other inside the company, but with our customers, with our board members, with our shareholders, with the environment or the community that we live in. And for me, that does require some attention. And when we do it right, I think it's really, really good for business. Yeah, you talk about changing work from the inside out. Yeah. Hear what that means. Yeah, sure. Well, the company or any organization is a collection of people, right? And so the company ends up having the same type of challenges that we as individuals have. And so I think about really changing work or changing the world, it starts with us, our insides. One of my favorite quotes is from the poet uh, Rumi, you know, 600 years ago, this master Persian poet, he said, yesterday I was clever and I tried to change the world, but today I'm wise and I'm working on changing myself. And there's some really, really deep wisdom in what he's talking about. You know, if I really want to change the world, it starts with me. And so how I think about that is if I change in consciousness and we can, you know, and I'll define that by just a broader awareness a broader awareness of myself, a broader awareness of others, a broader awareness of the world around me, then by definition, I'm going to do things in a different way. If I am more mindful, if I am more conscious, I am going to show up as a different leader. I'm going to show up as a different person. I'm going to make choices that are different for the company. And I think all those choices end up being better for not only the company, but the world around us and all the individuals that it contains. So it starts with each one of us. Fantastic. I think that you and I agree that our uh, joint experience at Xilinx was a positive one in our careers. We all have multiple employers that we can think of that were great or maybe less than. <laughs> sure. And, uh, I, I guess what was unique about LinkedIn that allowed you to thrive sure. in such a creative sure. role? You mentioned uh, the, the focus on compassion. Anything else? I think it was, I mean, overall, you could define it as culture, but the culture starts from the top. It started with Reed Hoffman and just the original group that, that was there, wanted to do things in a certain way. It was followed on by our, you know, not founder, but early CEO, Jeff Weiner, who really embraced it and also surrounded himself with other people who had a similar, you know, philosophy. And it just kept building on itself, realizing and, and, you know, Jeff, who tells his own story about his evolution from being, let's say, not at all compassionate as a leader to being more compassionate and then seeing the benefits of it. I think a lot of leaders, when they came to LinkedIn, they, you know, you come to a company and you adjust to its culture. Right. So a lot of leaders come from other places. They adjust to this culture of, 
oh, wow, I can be a good person and a strong leader and demanding all at the same time. And actually, I'm more successful than before when I was a command and control person. And they, they kind of open their eyes and go, wow, now, given the permission to be this person, this leader, this conscious leader, I don't want to go back. Right. So over time, uh, it became this self-selecting culture where, you know, it's the no jerks rule or even if jerks were there, they would self-select out because they just weren't as successful inside of our environment. So it built on itself over time, not not one person or one thing. But when you gave this group of people permission to act in a certain way, they did. And it was amazing. Sounds like a great experience. Uh, you know, I've, I've respected your leadership talents for a couple of decades, and still I was very surprised and really impressed by your talents as an author. Uh, the you. title of your book is The Full Body Yes. What motivated you to write the book? <laughs> you know, I've always been a writer. In fact, uh, when I was 18 and trying to figure out what to do with my life, part of that journey was I couldn't decide what to do, to be an engineer or a writer or a musician or a psychologist or a teacher or whatever. So it's always been a part of me since ninth grade. I, you know, in, the, in my teacher, Mrs. Sawyer's class, I always knew I would write a book, but for the last, whatever, 35 years, it just wasn't there. I knew I wanted as head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn, I wanted to write a book because people would ask me, what does it even mean? What does it mean to be a compassionate leader? So I felt compelled you know, kind of to define it. And then for me, the tipping point was I was I was in the car with a friend. We were coming back from a speaking event uh, at, a, at an event type of like this. And my friend gets this funny look. He's driving. I'm in the front seat. And he looks over at me. And he says, the universe has told me to tell you it's time to write your book. <laughs> <laughs> and we both laughed. And then I kind of got quiet and I checked in, like checked in, you know, inside. I'm like, yeah, that feels right. And, you know, by the time, uh, by the time it was time to write the book, it was April of 2020, we had all been sent home and I essentially traded commuting time for writing time, you know, and knocked it out in 10 or 12 weeks. Uh, so it was ripe. It was ready at that exact moment. Awesome. Uh, you're a very good storyteller. <laughs> Thank you. A really good mix of personal anecdotes, scientific study, and even parables from the Bible that are really impactful in, in getting your message across. So, um, many of them in a very humble and self-deprecating way. Does storytelling always come naturally to you? I think I come from a family of storytellers. You know, my, my uh, grandpa or two was always sitting around the Thanksgiving table or whatever, spinning some yarn. And my brother's a really good storyteller. So it's always been a part of me. Um, yeah. I don't know where it comes from, but I, I really enjoy a good story. As a kid, I was glued to the TV. You know, I grew up on a family farm and we were supposed to be working hard. Everybody else was working hard. Every chance I got, I was glued to the TV. And so I credit all those wasted years in front of the TV, you know, to my, my storytelling prowess. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of different stories. Can you share one of your favorite stories from the book? Mm, yeah. In fact, we, so to set it up a little bit, I'm the youngest of five. I grew up on a family farm. And as the youngest, and this is true in most for youngest, like we're seeking attention, right? To, to, to get our parents' approval, which is another way of saying to get, you know, love, to get love from others. So I was always kind of 
looking for that attention, always looking specifically to my father for that attention. And in this moment, this was in 2015, my father had passed away, you know, and so he wasn't there anymore for me to go get those attaboys or to to get that back. And in that same moment, I had this big job at LinkedIn, I was reporting to the CEO, he had other things to do, and was had left me alone, essentially, which was fantastic as a leader. But it also meant that I didn't have anybody at work to get those attaboys back from. And even my spiritual mentor was not available during this time. So I found myself in this moment, kind of in my mid 40s, with no one to go to, a kind of the top of the pyramid. There was nobody for me to go get advice from, nobody to go get those accolades from. And it was uncomfortable for me. It was a place I'd not been in before. Now, in the same moment, my son was on the high school golf team. So we played quite a bit for me, you know, five, six times a month. And this one Sunday afternoon, I was, I wanted to go play golf in the afternoon. I was waiting for my son. He came home and he was tired. He was busy and, you know, he didn't want to go. So I went by myself and it was the first time I'd gone golfing by myself in 10 years because it was always with my son or with some work event, never by myself. But I got there, it's like a September, it's late in the day. There's nobody there, like literally nobody. You know, and I'm on the third hole and I'm starting, it had been a stressful time with all the work and losing my dad and all this, but I started to kind of calm down. There's this, on this third hole, it's in a valley. You know, the sun is streaming through the trees. There's, there's foxes and rabbits, literally they're foxes. They will steal your sandwich out of your golf cart if you're not watching. And I was starting to calm down and just feel at peace with myself. And I hit my shot, it's a par three, 126 yards. I hit my shot. And it was pretty good. Like I'm, I'm a highly irregular golfer, but this one was pretty good. And I couldn't see where it landed because there was a bunker in front of the green. But when it landed, I thought, oh my God, that went in. Which means that I was gonna get my first and maybe only hole in one in my life, but I'm out here by myself. There's no, like, of course, of course, this is how it happens, right? First time in 10 years, now I'm gonna hit a hole in one. And I got this really quick kind of intuition and, you know, that voice, whatever you want to call that voice, our deepest self, the divine, whatever you want to call it. And it said, this is just for you. How do you want to feel about it? Right? I'd spent my whole life looking to my father, looking to my boss, looking to other people to tell me how I feel about life. And this is just for you. And so as I'm walking my 126 yards, I'm having this, you know, dialogue, I'm having this introspection moment, like, who am I? Am I strong enough to just be me and not care about what other people think? So I get to the hole, I don't see my ball, I get to the hole itself. And of course, my ball is in there. I take I take a picture of it and send I text it to my son and he responds, he's 16. He's like, what? <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, well, if my son was here, this would be different, right? There'd be dancing and club dropping and shouting. You know, I'd end up buying drinks for our round. There'd be picture taking. And then the next day, you know, I'd put it on social media. I'd tell everybody at work. Oh, I'd stop by the clubhouse and get my name in the paper. But instead, this is just for me, right? Because every one of those experiences is just another excuse for somebody else to tell me how I should feel about my life. And I thought, okay, that's, 
That was a really powerful thing for me and my development. And how often do each one of us look externally for our joy when the joy comes from within? So it's a really powerful lesson for me. No kidding. Fantastic. You tell some, I, I think, uh, challenges, ch stories with challenges, uh, like you tell the very touching story of your daughter, Anjali, mm -hmm. missing out on her senior year of high school due to the pandemic. I mm. think a lot of us have re-examined our personal and professional priorities over the last few years, and uh, including the way that we lead our teams. Yeah. Maybe share some of your experience from LinkedIn and what you're sure. doing now. Uh, sure. What would, advice would you pass along to our leaders about sure. action, mindfulness, sure. things that they need to look for managing their teams? Well, we're in this evolution, which I think most people can see, this evolution in management styles from command and control, which essentially came from the slave days, right? when there were kings and slaves or even not that far away in our own history here in America. Command and control. I did it, why aren't you doing it? I told you to do it, why aren't you doing it? And some people still act that way, but it doesn't feel good as a person. And what we're really seeing, especially in, as we've moved away from the agrarian economy through the industrial economy to the information economy, what's really clear for most of these businesses is that people are by far the business's most important resource, right? Resource. And so when we take care of people, we're investing in the company. And people, as you mentioned, like during the pandemic, people have reevaluated their lives and said, okay, I want something different. I want more from my work experience than just this simple transaction of dollars for my time you know, the stats will say that nine out of 10 people say that they would work for less money if they had more meaning in their life, right? The number one factor in how we feel about work is our relationship with our manager, right? People leave managers, they don't leave companies, they leave managers. And the second biggest factor in our overall life satisfaction, our overall happiness is that relationship with work. So our relationship with our manager for many people is actually the most important relationship in their entire life as it pertains to their well-being, to their overall happiness. So you put all these things together, right? People have figured out that they want more in life. In, in the information age, employees are the most important resource we have. And it goes back to, wow, we should be doing more. And what does that more mean? Okay, it means as a culture, as a company culture, we should be taking care of our people. As a manager, we should be training our managers so that they're great people leaders. You know, I read the other day, I, I can't cite the stat, but the first time on average, the first time that managers get manager training is five and a half years after they started becoming a manager. That's <laughs> the average. Yeah. <laughs> that is average. And so all of these together say, this is where I'm spending my time now is helping companies and leaders build those cultures at the company level, at the team level, at the leader level. Cause I think, you know, for, for me, I want to make the world a better place. You start thinking about the impact you could have on three and a half billion people. That's how many are in the workforce. If you gave them a great manager. That's so 
that's how I'm trying to change the world from the inside out. Yeah, that's awesome. As an association, I think I shared with you, many of our members are working collaboratively, have really through the pandemic to determine what is the new normal with worker attitudes, uh, remote work has obviously complicated that quite a bit. Everyone looking for more work-life balance. Sure. Any observations about that people are changing, leadership is changing, and what do you think the new normal is? Sure. Well, the new normal, I'd say where we are right in this moment is that people are still trying to figure out what the normal is in terms of back to work. It looks like we're settling in on hybrid. I'm hearing a lot of two or three days in the office, trying to coordinate those two or three days in the office with other people, but still giving people flexibility to be home sometimes. I think the new, where we are right now, maybe not where we'll end up, is that middle managers are feeling the pinch the hardest because they are their directors at this director level or middle level. I think this is probably the most important level of the company because they're the level who gets enough interaction with the executives to know what's going on from a strategic standpoint and know where we're headed as a company. But they're also still in the business on the ground enough to know what's actually going on you know, at the day to day. And at the day to day, we're dealing with the broad base of the pyramid of employees who are struggling to get to figure out how to live life. You know, so it's the directors who uh, are seeing that at a daily basis. They're feeling the pressure from the top and they're feeling the pressure from the bottom. We have attrition and that means that those directors, those senior managers are the ones who are feeling the pinch. They will be the ones jumping in to do the work or feeling the pressure of doing the work. So, so if I were to invest in one group of people, it would be them to give them more tools on what they need. Now, longer term, what I hope that we get to where we evolve to, we talked about the evolution of leadership, people leadership, but the evolution of the company. You know, there's some statistics that show that when a company or an organization balances the needs of all of its stakeholders, that it's more successful. And by balance the needs, it's creating a balance for, yes, your employees, yes, your shareholders, um, and yes, also your customers. A true balance, meaning when things are really good, we're all making money, then employees should be making money as well. When things are challenging, that means you know employees have to step up just so the company can stay alive. It's maintaining that balance. And I think this is a tricky, tricky part because we have this history of managing to the quarterly earnings, right? The short-term gains. And our whole life, you know, in the corporate world is often dictated by those short-term quarterly gains for the shareholders. And I think it takes a lot of courage for a CFO and a CEO and the, the leadership around them to say sometimes, actually this quarter is not gonna be that great because we've chosen to make these long-term bets, either a long-term bet for our customers or a long-term bet for our employees. And if we can stretch those cycles out better, I, longer, I think that we can create more sustainable organizations that will weather the storms better, that will be stronger, that will lower attrition rates, and that will be healthier for everyone involved. Yeah, I think both of us experienced that with uh, Xilinx going through the uh, dot-com bust yes. back in the early <laughs> part of the century. Right. Hey, um, so both of us have spent probably three decades working for sizable public companies. 
now you're on your own with your schedule completely on your terms. Yes. How how are you investing <laughs> your time? Yes. Well, I'm trying not to be a workaholic, right? So I definitely spent those years, like a lot of you listening, of being a 50 or 60 or 70 hour a week type of guy. And so I'm trying to practice what I preach. And because I can do what I want, I'm trying to have balance in my life. So, you know, yesterday I went on a three and a half hour bike ride. Um, but I'm also still working. I'm still working for myself. And I, I'm choosing to invest my work time because I still want to work. I enjoy it in the things that we've talked about. I'm doing executive coaching. I'm doing culture consulting. Uh, and now I'm building something for teams. I really want to build something that's scalable because remember, my mission is to change work from the inside out. And I really do mean it for three and a half billion people. So I'm trying to build some scalable things that will get these concepts out um, to do two things. One is inspire. So people say, okay, that's great. I want some of that too. And then two is to give them tools to answer the question, all right, but you know, what do I do when I go back to my desk, right? I get all fired up. Maybe I, I hear a talk or I go to a class. What do I do when I get back to my desk? And that's where I'm really interested in operationalizing compassion or operationalizing conscious business to make it really simple and really easy for companies to put these practices into place and see some immediate results. Yeah, that's a great concept. So you came from an operations background, certainly, and trying to marry that with, uh, with, with these great concepts is certainly good ROI. I, I think getting the better bottom line results out of, out of your company as a result of that and really improving the lives of your employees is really fantastic. Yeah, I think most leaders, if given a choice, who said, you can be a total jerk and make X profit, or you can be a really good person and improve everybody's life around you and make the same X profit, or maybe more, more. most people would say, all right, well, show me how to do the second one. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Scott, thanks so much for your time today. And thanks so much for the insights on changing work from the inside out. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everybody who's listening. I appreciate your attention. Hey, again, Scott's book is The Full Body Yes. It's available on Amazon in print, Kindle, or audiobook, right? That's right. You can find it anywhere. That's you can right. find my uh, website at scottshoot.com. Fantastic. Okay, well, that's a wrap for today. I hope y'all uh, will join us for our next Channel Channel interview. Thanks so much for your time to join today's podcast. We hope all of you and your families are hopefully enjoying some warmer weather with springtime just around the corner. Take care.